Well, turn with me, if you have a Bible this morning, to Job chapter 42. Job 42, the last chapter in Job. And as we come to the end of the book of Job today, let me begin by reminding ourselves of the only divinely inspired commentary on the book of Job that is elsewhere in the Bible. I have many books on my shelves that deal with the book of Job, and none of them rightly claim to have divine inspiration. Many of them disagree with the other ones on this or that point about interpreting Job. But in the New Testament, in a small letter by James, the half-brother of Jesus, in the fifth chapter, we have a small but important comment on Job that we know is correct. We know it's correct even if it challenges and stretches our perceptions of the story of Job. This is what it says in James 5, verses 10 and 11. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purposes of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. We know that that is right because it's inspired. It's in the Bible. But it stretches us, doesn't it? Do you find yourself wrestling with James's assessment of the story of Job? I know I do. A story of severe suffering. A man without a family wrestling in anguish with unanswered questions. Is that really a story about how the Lord is compassionate and merciful? Is it a book that really reveals the purposes of the Lord? If Job was never really given an answer to the purpose of his suffering? And is Job an example of suffering with patience and steadfastness when he at times doubted God's goodness and accused God of wrong? Well, the last chapter of the book of Job may not answer all of the questions that you have about the book of Job. It may not answer all the questions you have about your suffering, but it does tie up some important loose ends. It does show us that James is correct, that Job is an example, even if an imperfect one, of patience and steadfastness in suffering, that God does have purposes in Job's suffering and our own, and ultimately, it shows us a God who is merciful and compassionate. So look down at Job chapter 42 in your Bibles or up on the screens as I read this chapter for us. And remember, uh, if you've been with us in recent weeks, you remember that this is picking up after two long speeches from God to Job, four long chapters of rhetorical questions 
put to Job as God showed Job his unparalleled power and wisdom in all of creation. Here's how Job responded. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself in repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Nehemathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima, and the name of the second, Keziah, and the name of the third, Karen Hapuch. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man in full of days. Let me suggest four key words that'll help us keep track of the structure in this passage. The first is confession. We first see Job's confession in the first six verses. And he begins by acknowledging God's power and sovereignty and God's right and freedom. Verse 2, I know that you can do all things and no purposes of yours can be thwarted. Now we, the readers of the book of Job, are very familiar with the sovereignty of God displayed in this book. Remember, 
back in chapter 1 and chapter 2, that heavenly scene. Remember Satan's accountability to God. Remember God's permission to let Satan go after Job, but only so far, limiting his powers twice. Remember from last week that Leviathan is on God's leash. Remember that no one throughout the story questioned God's sovereignty at any point in the book, not even in those torturous debates in the long chapters in the middle. But what has been questioned at times is whether God has the right the freedom to do whatever he does. Does God have the right, the freedom to do what he does even when we can't see the reasons for it? Even when it doesn't seem to make sense to us? Even when it's painful to us and prolonged? Well, Job now fully acknowledges, I know that you can do all things. God has the power and God has the right to do whatever he does. Then Job interacts with what God had said earlier as he put various challenges to Job. You see that? In verses 3 and 4 of our passage, he quotes God back to God before answering God. God had demanded an answer of Job back in chapter 38. And these are quotes of sections of that in verse 3 and 4. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Hear and I will speak. I will question you. You will make it known to me. Now after God's first speech, Job gave a brief response. Remember that? Chapter 40, verse 4 and 5. It was a good response for then, but it was inadequate. It was a confession of his smallness and a vow of silence. He said he couldn't answer. That was good, but inadequate. And so now in chapter 42, he gives his fuller answer to God, a more direct accounting. Verse 3. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And I think Job here is referring back to those times in those middle chapters where Job overstepped, where Job's questions about God turned to accusations of God, where God, where Job rather said things about God. God that were wrong. We reviewed those a couple weeks ago. We don't need to do that again. But it is because of things like that, wanting to take God to court, put him on the stand, that Job now repents in chapter 42. Skip to verse, verse 6 of our passage. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Well, did Job need to repent? A few of you might be wondering that. Several others are thinking, well, no, of course Job needed to repent. 
This is an issue on which scholars disagree. It's probably more complicated than you know if you think it's an obvious answer. Notice if you have an ESV Bible, the ESV has a footnote at the word repent that says it could be translated, I am comforted. Now, it is true that that Hebrew word can be translated comforted. In fact, earlier in the book of Job, it is universally translated comfort or comforted. It's been a word, a theme that's strung through the book of Job quite a few times. Remember, his friends came to comfort him. Same Hebrew word. Job was comforted by his bed. He called his friends miserable comforters. Job cried out, who will comfort me? But the Hebrew word literally can just mean to turn. And it can have a more positive or a more negative connotation to it. It can be to turn from discomfort to comfort, or it can mean to turn towards conviction and confession, repentance. So even though the word has been translated comfort earlier in Job, I think here, in this context of chapters 38 to 42, I think the other translation available to us is is the right one. In other words, I think that the tone and the purpose of what came before, of God showing up in a whirlwind, of God bringing rebuke to Job, putting him on the stand, asking those repetitive, rhetorical questions, essentially interrogating him, I think that indicates that Job needed to recant at least or relent at least and perhaps repent the christian standard translation the csb probably splits the uprights with their translation i reject my words and am sorry for them i am dust in ashes so job repents he is sorry which means that he sees his sin He feels bad about his sin. He feels the weight of his sin, and he renounces it. He turns from it. He he doesn't repent of some sort of initial sin that warranted the suffering of chapter 1 and 2 at the beginning. No, we know that he was suffering precisely because he was righteous, But in his suffering, again, his questions of God at times turned to accusations of God. And so now, having heard from the inscrutable God who runs this world just fine without any help from Job, Job now sees and feels the presumption of his pride with these accusations, and he relents. He lets go. He turns. By the way, elsewhere in the Bible, there are other figures who have encounters with a big God and they confess their smallness. Seeing God big, they see their sin for what it is. You think of Isaiah 6 as he encounters that throne room of God with the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy. 
The whole room is shaking. It's filled with smoke. And what does Isaiah say? Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Or you think of when the disciples were with Jesus in the boat and they're not catching anything. And then Jesus says, how about throwing the net over there? And then a, a catch comes in that almost takes the boat down. And what does Peter say? Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Or John in Revelation 1, when he encounters that vision of the resurrected, ascended, ruling Christ, he said, I saw him and I fell at his feet as dead. I wonder, is that kind of experience completely unfamiliar to you? I hope it's not. You may not get a vision of God's throne room or an apocalyptic vision like John did on Patmos. But do you at times encounter the bigness of God in new and fresh ways? And, and for a moment, you tremble. You put your hand on your mouth. You stand in awe. We need that. I hope that keeps being a familiar experience to you. Perhaps it's been a long, long time and you'd say, oh, Lord, show up again. I need that. But let me direct your attention back to verse 5 now, which we haven't talked about yet. Where there, Job says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Don't you love that phrase? Now my eyes see you see you. He sees God. I don't think he's really referring here to physically seeing God, although God had showed up in a whirlwind, a tempest, and there's probably some physical manifestation of God's presence going on here. But I think when Job says, now my eyes see you, this is like a, a figure of speech. He's saying something like, I thought I knew something about you, but now I really get it. I had heard some stuff about you before, but now I have encountered you. And I think this is getting close to the very heart of the book of Job. We, the reader, know that at this point, Job hasn't received answers to his many questions. Even after these two long speeches from God, his questions are unanswered. We, the readers, know that Job hasn't been enlightened about the heavenly scene and the satanic challenge and what was at stake. And yet, without that information, Job comes to an encounter with God that is enough. It's enough for him. The scholar Francis Anderson puts it so well. Job is brought to contentment without ever knowing all the facts of his case. God thrusts Job into an experience of dereliction to make it possible for Job to enter into a life of naked faith, to learn to love God for himself alone, 
to withhold the full story from Job, even after the test was over, keeps Job walking by faith, not by sight. He does not say in the end, now I see it all. He never sees it all. He sees God. And that's enough. God was enough. Seeing more of God brings humility, repentance where that's needed, and a, a measure of settledness. As Amy Carmichael put it, in acceptance lieth peace. So God had purposes for Job. Remember that from James? You have seen the purposes of the Lord. God has purposes to show Job more of God. And by extension, more of his own heart. And that was for Job's good. Job was a better man. He's brought low. But his vision of God is enlarged. Thus, it is compassionate and merciful of God. We don't know all the reasons. We, the readers, know more reasons than Job knows. But at the very least, we know the compassionate, merciful God has reason, purpose in our suffering to make us just a little bit more dependent on him and to see him as bigger than our problems. And let's not miss the order of things here in Job 42. Job's encounter with God and his confession of his sin here in verse 6 is before a public vindication takes place. It's, it's before a full restoration takes place. Thus, it shows that Job is willing to submit to God without answers, without public vindication, and without the restoration of his possessions. Which leads, secondly, this word vindication. Vindication. And by that word vindication, I have two things in mind. Job's vindication, but then ultimately God's vindication. We'll take those one at a time. With Job's vindication, note that it curiously comes by way of God's confrontation of these three unhelpful friends. After dozens of chapters of debate, speech after speech, round after round, Oh, how the readers need, and oh, how Job and his friends needed someone to step in to provide some clarity with all of the confusing bickering. And so God here makes it so simple, so stark, so black and white. It's so black and white that it actually raises new questions. See verse 7? After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now remember, some background here. 
that both Job and his friends had that wonky retribution principle in their theology. Job and the friends both agreed that the righteous are blessed by God and the wicked get what they deserve. They believed that if someone was suffering, it is surely because they have sinned greatly. But the difference between Job and his friends was that Job knew he had not sinned in some great way to warrant the severe suffering. And the friends insisted that because Job is suffering so severely, he must have sinned so greatly. And we know that Job has not sinned greatly and is not suffering because of his sin. But, but we also do know that there were times, as we've said already, that Job overstepped. He misspoke. He charged God with wrong. So how can God say in verse 7, flatly, so starkly, and twice, that the friends have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has? Has Job spoken rightly of God? But we have to conclude something like this. That Job was on the whole right, even though he said some things that were wrong. And the friends were on the whole wrong, even though they occasionally, like a broken clock is right a couple times a day, they were occasionally right. We've got to remember that Job, even in his deepest questions, even in his darkest charges of God, Job kept going to God. He didn't give up on God. He kept wrestling with God. As for the friends, their God is basically nothing more than a retribution principle. For Job, though he'd like to get God to court, he ultimately says things like God will be his vindicator. God will be his mediator. God will be his arbitrator. He will be the redeemer. Remember chapter 19 where he said those wonderful words, I know that my redeemer lives and that on the last day he will stand upon the earth and after my skin is destroyed, I will see God. Job said some remarkably profound and right things about God. And the friends did not. Thus, God rebukes the friends. He's angry about their wrong words about God. That's a scary thing to ponder, especially as a preacher. We must say right things about God. But in rebuking the friends this way, in this flat-out, black-and-white statement, Job is vindicated. He's vindicated before these friends who have maligned him, mocked him, who've said horrible things to him. And notice four times in verse 7 and 8, God refers to Job 
as my servant Job. That's the language that God puts on Abraham and Moses and David and even his own begotten son. My servant. So Job is not only vindicated before the charges of his three friends, but implicitly he is here vindicated before Satan. Remember Satan charged in chapters 1 and 2 that Job only worships you, God, for what you give him and how you bless him. And if you take his blessings away, then he will curse you to your face. Well, Job has had some topsy-turvy moments along the way. But here we are, and his faith has remained intact. He has kept his integrity, and he did not curse God. Satan was wrong. God was right. Thus, in Job's vindication, God is vindicated. Because remember that that charge that Satan brought to God, he only worships you for the blessings, that implied that God is only worth worshiping if he gives blessings. What was at stake in the satanic challenge was the worth and glory of God. And Job did not curse God in those months of grief and loss and suffering and confusion and anger and frustration. And when God finally showed up and did speak to Job, he did not tell Job what was going on behind the scenes did not tell Job what had been at stake in his suffering. He didn't tell Job why and how it might be worth it. God simply showed up and revealed to Job more of his power and glory and transcendence and bigness and his godness. And that was enough for Job. But the passage moves on. A third word intercession. And this one we will deal with a little more quickly. Still speaking to Eliphaz and the two friends, God continues in verse 8, now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job will pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. Can you imagine the humble pie that this would be for the friends? The friends thought that Job was a lying, sin-hiding blasphemer. But God not only says that Job was right and you were wrong, but also God says to the friends that to appease my wrath, you should make costly sacrifices as Job prays for you. Job will be your priest. Job will be your mediator. And apparently there was a newfound contrition and humility and faith among these three friends that they did it. Verse 9, they went and did what the Lord told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. 
Do you remember that the book of Job began with sacrifice and intercession? Job making that for his children. And now the book ends with it. Job making sacrifice and prayer, intercession for his friends. So-called friends. At times they were more like enemies to Job. But Job is a man who has been refined by God in the furnace of suffering. And he comes out as a shining example of what the Lord Jesus would later teach his followers. That they are to do good to those who do harm to them. He said to love your enemy and pray for them. Job is doing that very thing. No grudge, just doing them good. He's not only an example of what Jesus would later teach, but he's also a foreshadow of what Jesus would later do. Jesus came to be a perfect sacrifice. Not to make sacrifice, but to be the sacrifice. To atone for our sins, to die in our place. That's what he did upon that cross. So you think of how the New Testament words this so succinctly and, and powerfully, like 1 Peter 1, that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Or Hebrews 9, that Jesus came to... Put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or 1 Timothy 2, that there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Have you bought in to this mediator? Have you come to this mediator, not with your sacrifices, but freely because he has already made that sacrifice have you come to him knowing that he can fix you make you whole that he can bear the wrath of god that it might not burn hot against your folly and mine that's the gospel that's the crux of the bible in Latin, crux is literally cross. It's, it's the crux of the matter. The crux is the crux. The cross is the crux of the story. And it's the, it's the crux of your life. It, it has to be. It, it's got to be the, the most central thing. It's got to be the thing you're banking on. Not God merely fixing your circumstances or getting you out of your present jam or, or making you more successful and 2024 than you have been ever before no you need a savior a mediator god's wrath burns against you without it but in christ if you believe in him and call out to him his wrath will be removed now fourth there's this last section it takes a bit longer but it won't take that long to deal with we could call it restoration restoration 
is the last leg of the story. It's a remarkable scene. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job. The Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Now let's make very clear up front that this abundant blessing spelled out in great detail, which we'll get to in just a bit, it was not owed to Job by God. Job's full restoration and then some, it does not prove that retribution principle that the whole book has been seeking to correct. No, Job's blessings were pure grace. It was owing only to the generosity of a gracious God who sovereignly and mysteriously gives to his creatures what they need and more, and to some, a whole lot more. Remember, Job had relented and submitted to God without a dangling carrot of getting everything back. Job had already proven that God was worth it just as he is in himself, even without his gifts. So with that qualification established, take note of some specifics about this gracious restoration. His relationships are restored in verse 11. Brothers, sisters, and all who knew him, they come back. And I know what you're thinking. Where were they all this time? Yes, indeed. In chapter 19, Job lamented that his brothers and friends had been estranged from them, from him. They were avoiding him and they were of no comfort to him. There's no explanation for that. Except people are no darn good. But now all those relationships are restored. Brothers, sisters, and friends, they're not only back, but they give them some money and some nice jewelry as well. And they eat. And now, long overdue, they show him some sympathy and comfort. All is well. His wealth is restored, even multiplied by two, further proving that it's just God's grace. The Lord also gave Job more children, seven sons and three daughters to be exact. We know they don't replace the ones that are gone. We know they don't make up for the loss of the ones who died. But that's not exactly the point here. The point is, Job had 10 kids. We're given special attention to the daughters. Did you notice that? Their names, Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hapuch. Those names mean, get this, turtle dove, cinnamon, and eye makeup. In other words, they are lovely, lovely, and lovely. They are beautiful. They smell good. 
Verse 15 says they were more beautiful than any women in the land. The emphasis on their beauty may seem strange to us, maybe even superficial. What's that doing here? It's just showing that the blessings and joys of this life are dripping from this family. Job can now once again see and notice beauty and appreciate it for what it is. The daughters even receive an inheritance with their brothers, verse 15, which would not have been customary in that culture for daughters to receive an inheritance, but it shows Job's superabundant wealth, his unusual generosity, and that the remarkable blessings of God run down from Job and trickle onto everyone around him. Blessings to the nth degree for the rest of his long life, another 140 years, which is double the 70 that Psalm 90 talks about as being kind of normal. He lived 140 years. He saw his sons, his son's sons, four generations, and Job died, an old man full of days. The end. What an ending. It's almost too good, isn't it? It's almost unbelievable. It's almost a little cheesy, if I can say so. It's almost otherworldly. And I think that is exactly the point especially from our vantage point as Christians today. What happens at the end of Job is actually far more than a restoration or even a double restoration. We could call it a consummation. This is a little peek, not into someone living the good life or the lifestyles of the rich and famous but it is a peek into a whole new world, too big, too great, and too good for the world that we're still in. There is a day coming, Christian, when Christ returns and he will put all things aright. He will make all things new. This is how our Bibles end. God will be with them, and he'll wipe away every tear from their eye. Death will be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain for the former things that passed away. Behold, I am making all things new, God says. For the Christian, no matter how good your life gets, there's no guarantee it'll stay that good. Number one, and number two, the only guarantee is that it's eventually on the other side going to be far, much better, far more better. Our greatest blessings come not at the end of the story of Job, not at the end of today, but at the end 
the end of the end. For us, then, the best is yet to be. Remember James and his comments on Job? Did you know, curiously, that James was talking about the Lord's return right before he brought up Job? James said, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job. You've seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. I love what Christopher Ashe says at this point in his book on the book of Job. He says, The purpose of the Lord to show mercy and compassion will be seen finally one day when the Lord returns in glory. And Job 42 anticipates that day. Ash says, The blessings we get now are just a tiny foretaste of the blessings to be poured out at the end. So we look forward to beauty that makes the most beautiful woman in the world seem dull. We look forward to fruitfulness that will make the most abundant family in the world seem barren. We look forward to prosperity that will make the Forbes list of the world's billionaires seem poor. We look forward to celebration that will make the best party in the world seem like a quiet glass of apple juice. For the Christian, Ash writes, the end comes at the end. So be patient, brothers and sisters. Wait for the end. Wait for the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh Lord, help us to believe, no matter what you take us through, that you have purpose, even when we can't peg it, we don't know it, we haven't yet revealed it or maybe never will. Help us to believe that you have purpose. Lord, help us to believe that none of your plans will be thwarted. Lord, help us to believe that in your plans, you are merciful and compassionate. You've shown that to Job. You've shown that to your church. You've shown that to us here today. And we believe that you will show it to us through the rest of our lives as long as we live and into glory where we will dwell with you forever and ever. Help us to believe it and look with great anticipation and expectancy for that day.